Sorry to mess up uh, some schedules. I know some people were expecting Father James to be presiding this evening, but I'm still not at the point of being able to preside for two masses in a row. So at least for the next few weeks, those schedules may be a little bit, uh, somebody may be appearing different than who is supposed to be in the schedule. So um, I hope you can bear with that. This is uh, an ancient feast that we celebrate uh, this evening and tomorrow. And just like uh, all other ancient feasts, Epiphany has gone through uh, a lot of changes over the years. Now, the, the Greek word for Epiphany could mean either a, a, a visible manifestation of a god or the visit of a ruler who was venerated as a god. So then, we get around to the third century, the 200s, uh, after Jesus' uh, Jesus's resurrection. And there's a group of folks who become very dangerous within the, uh, the body of the church, and they're called the Gnostics. Um, now, I'm one of those geeky people who watches, well, I used to watch the History Channel, but with that Pawn Star stuff on there, I, I don't do that anymore. But... Uh, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, you know, those stations. And, and they, they have these programs on from time to time about, you know, the Catholic Church uh, or early Christianity. And when I watch the things, I get pretty upset because they're not telling the truth. And they make these Gnostics out to be folks who were the ones of the truth and the, the church to be the one telling the lies. But in the third century, the, the Gnostics begin to cause problems within the body of the church. And so they celebrate the baptism of the Lord in the belief that it was at that moment that the Son of God was really born into the world. So they're, they're celebrating the baptism of the Lord as more important than the birth of Jesus Christ. And of course, at this point, second century, we're not yet celebrating Christmas. And it's thought that, that Epiphany then was introduced by the church in reaction to this celebration of the birth of Jesus, especially in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And then, of course, as time goes on, the purpose of the feast itself changes. You know, it is not until Constantine allows the celebration of, uh, or the, the acceptance of Christianity in the empire that the Feast of Christmas is established. And no one knew when Jesus was born. They didn't keep those kinds of records back then. And so what happens is the church appropriates a pagan feast, the, the solstice, uh, the... Uh, uh, the Feast of Saturnalia, which the Romans were celebrating on December the 25th. And, and what they were celebrating, of course, was not the coming of the sun, S-O-N, but the coming of the sun, S-U-N. And the church then appropriates this date and, and makes it the Feast of Christmas. Well, if you watch the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or whatever, they make it sound like the church has been trying to hide this from people, and it's never done that. It, it has always baptized, let us say, 
pagan feast and appropriated them for the celebration of important moments in the Christian church. And so eventually then, Epiphany takes on a different uh, uh, purpose. Uh, you know, the, the, the Western and the Eastern churches, as I said, were beginning to celebrate then the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Magi on December 25th. But then eventually these two events get separated. And now we celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas, and we celebrate the coming of the Magi on this feast of the Epiphany. So that's a little bit of history going way back when. So let's move a little further up in historical perspective to, to the year 1857. And there's a fellow by the name of John Henry Hopkins. And he wrote a hymn that we know well and we sang at the beginning of our liturgy, We Three Kings. And he writes this hymn because in 1857, Epiphany is the day that gifts were being exchanged to represent the uh, giving of the gifts that the Magi had given to Jesus. And during the 1800s, of course, Christmas trees were taken down on Epiphany. Now, how many of you have already done that? A few, all right. But most have not, right? That's, that's pretty good. We're, we're hanging in there until next week. And so in those days, all of the gifts and all of the treats that Santa Claus had brought were hung on the tree. Unlike our contemporary custom of, of having the, the wrapped gifts placed under the tree. And only then when the tree was being taken down were the children and other members in the family, uh, that's when they received their gifts. So John Henry Hopkins realized that children were no longer, by 1857, connecting the gifts on the tree with the gifts brought by the Magi. And so he wrote this hymn as a gift for his nieces and nephews to help them reconnect gift-giving with the spirit of the giving of gifts by the Magi. And so we can see how, you know, when we celebrated in those early centuries, the gift-giving was the gift of, or the Feast of, of the Epiphany was tied with the Feast of the Birth of Jesus, so the gift-giving happened on that day. And then a separation took place, and now uh, we've sort of brought it back in our English-speaking world to, you know, Santa Claus comes on Christmas Day, and that's when we receive our gifts. Well, our three readings this evening are about God's gifts. From Isaiah, we... We call to mind the wonderful promise of God to restore Jerusalem. And here, we're talking about both the restoration of the city that had been destroyed by Babylon, but also the restoration of the people and their faith as they are returning from exile. 
And they are being promised something even greater than what they had before, both in their city and in their hearts as well. They were being given a gift of hope. And then Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, tells of the gift of unity that, that God has given. Uh, a gift of peace, a gift of understanding for all of us as we stand before God. And then we get to the gospel. And you notice that there wasn't anything said about how many magi there were. You know, in most places in Europe today, it's not three as we celebrate here in the United States, but they actually celebrate 12 kings that come to visit. Uh, but the gifts are the same. Uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh coming from all of these different parts of the world. And there are certainly reasons for Matthew presenting these strange astrologers as coming from the East, but the more important issue is the gifts themselves. And so what Matthew is teaching us about is what God has given all of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so these gifts of the Magi are, are very, very symbolic. Gold was a gift given to a king. Incense was given to a priest for making offerings to God. And so incense was associated with the divine. And myrrh was used to perfume the body of a person who had died, originally intended to help hide the smell of death. It became a, a symbol of suffering and death, as we all well know. And all three gifts, then, reveal something of the person and the purpose of this Jesus. And although today is about celebrating what God has given us, it's also a good occasion to look to the Magi and asks, ask ourselves, you know, what do I bring to give to God. You know, the gifts we give, or, or perhaps don't give, reveal something about us. And, and they reveal something about our faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And after our gifts have been placed on the altar, you know, the, the new words of our Mass that we've been using now for the last, uh, this is three years as we entered into Advent, you know, the priest says, pray, my brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. You know, are our gifts acceptable? You know, have we, we given easy gifts? And I'm going to tell you right now, this is me that I'm talking about here. I've done this a few too many times. You know, are we, we given, have we given easy gifts at Christmas, for instance, like gift cards that we give when we're not quite sure what our nieces and nephews want or, 
or we've run out of time to select a gift. And I have done that on too many occasions. I have 24 nieces and nephews. I get to the point where I wish my brothers and sisters would stop having kids <laughs> because I feel an obligation to share a little bit of what I have with them. And you know, while gift cards might assure that the recipients can go buy whatever they want, do they really talk about my affection for them? And again, I, I think not. Uh, I've you know, let time slide by me a few uh, years here, and, uh, and, and that's what I've done. Are the gifts we give on the altar to God merely superficial? Are they gifts given because that's what we're supposed to do? You know, many, before Christmas, many shoppers buy a lot of things and then only later decide who gets what. And again, I'm not throwing stones here. I've done this. You know, or, or do we buy gifts based on what we like? You know, I remember when I was little and growing up, um, I had the neatest train set. And thinking back on it today, was that me or was that my dad? You know, and, and he will admit that, that he, he did that, but I still today love trains. I you know, would uh, love to have the time to, to still uh, be able to, to, to play with them, but that time is not allowed. And, and sometimes you know, we buy gifts uh, and, and give them to people, whether it's Christmas or birthdays or anything else, because it's something we like, not necessarily uh, what those who are receiving them might like to have. And in that vein, do we give God what seems sufficient, or, or do we give a loving sacrifice? And some people save all year to be able to afford one special gift. And others just buy gifts because they look good or maybe they're affordable. But those of you who are parents, I want to ask you, what gift do you treasure the most? And what are the gifts that you have saved for years? I mentioned uh, the other day at a Mass that you know, my mother is suffering from dementia. And so... I go down there a couple times a week to make sure things are going well with she and my father. And it offers me the opportunity to kind of get into things that I probably shouldn't get into. Uh, you know, to go look under the bed and, and pull out the, uh, the, the big drawers that are there where my mother has saved everything that is special to her. And, you know, the gifts that apparently meant the most to her were those that we, as children, gave to her. And I have looked at those and I think, you know, those are pretty ugly. Paste, glitter, magic marker. But from a parent's point of view, those must be the most beautiful gifts you've ever received. I know it was for my mother or she would not have kept that. 
you know, we know what God has given to us. And that's the life of his very son. You know, how have our gifts to God matched up? You know, are they precious in the eyes of the Lord? And do we make the connection between what God has given us and what we give 